Hey, housewives, come on in. You know the dirty dishes are still in the sink from yesterday and the laundry is still in the basket. Pop your AirPods in and make yourself at home here. I'm Tracy. I'm Tori. And we are your Unlikely Housewives. Stepping out in faith and believing that God calls the unlikely, we are here to show you the appreciation and validation you deserve, lead you to authentic relationships, and release you of believing the cultural lies to restore your faith and wellness. Pull up those high-waisted yoga pants, tighten your top knot, and reheat your coffee for the third time. Turn up the volume and let's go. housewives. Hey, hey, welcome back, friends. We are here and dare I say we're in a completely new setup. I know you're all surprised. Yeah. We change things. I know. And not every season. I want to say every three weeks, it feels like. But this one is kind of a fun one. So hopefully we can post some videos of this setup because this is this is a little bit classier. Yeah, I say so and comfortable. Uh, yeah, these chairs are pretty comfortable. Mm-hmm. My kids approved of them when we bought them. So that was the main goal of yeah. children's approval. But we have got a special guest in studio and Tracy, go ahead and introduce. Yes. Well, we have Libby Davis. Welcome. Libby is the mother of Cooper, who passed away on August 29th of 2021 due to a fentanyl overdose. And Libby is here to talk to us about Keeping Clean with Coop, the organization that came out of this terrible loss. And the goal of her memorial is to bring education and awareness. The Cooper Davis Memorial Foundation exists to educate young people, parents, and the community and raise awareness about the dangers of illicit fentanyl and fake pills. Public awareness is low, so we believe that education is our best defense in the first step in preventing tragic outcomes like ours. Welcome, Libby. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Well, my dear friend actually brought your name to our attention when we were visiting, just kind of about how our podcast really is to bring hope, light, and humor to motherhood and marriage. And we were just kind of actually brainstorming. And she said, actually, she has something that I really think that you should talk about is the overdosing. And I kind of didn't know, as we were talking about this before, like how big of an issue this is. And so we really wanted to get to meet someone on a personal level and hear your story. So would you please, Libby, first tell our listeners about you? Well, my background is that I'm a nurse and my husband is a nurse anesthetist. So we come from the medical field, which is kind of just added to the gravity of our situation when this happened to our family and it happened with the medication that my husband uses on a daily basis. However, we know now we've learned a lot in these past two, almost two and a half years that we immediately felt compelled to share with every family that we could reach because it's such an important topic and without a doubt it could happen to anyone Realizing that we knew nothing about what I will call an epidemic, certainly a health crisis in our country, it just kind of blew us away. So that's kind of how our journey started. So we now have started a nonprofit, as you mentioned, with the hopes of educating other families and and youth about these dangers that so many of our teenagers don't know about. Yeah, well, and I think 
before this was even brought to my attention from our friend, I was unaware. And since then, it's just crazy how it's been brought in front of me. Like I was saying, we my kids are in a middle school and one of the sessions on the back to school night that they were bringing kids in was a, I think it was a police officer and someone else was coming in to talk about the fentanyl exposure to kids. And I don't think we knew what a, like you said, epidemic this was becoming. I mean, it's not something that communities want to advertise either. It's not something that they want to put in the news. I know the city that we live in and the county that we live in is very strategic about what goes in the news and what doesn't and how they keep things. I mean, we can talk about all sorts of things that are kept from from ours because our community and county and city are always on the top places to live, top places to raise a family. And there's money in that. So there's some behind the scenes stuff as well. But tell us, and to honor him and to know his story, tell us about Coop. So this always makes me cry, no matter how many times I tell his story. But Cooper was 16 when he passed. And he was a fun kid. He was that kid very outgoing, never met a stranger. I mean, even as a toddler, he would talk to adults (laughs) like he would have full conversations with adults and tell them he likes their shoes or just silly things. But very adventurous, outgoing. He had an, an extremely kind heart. I remember if we were downtown or a place where we would see an unhoused person, he wouldn't let us proceed without offering something. And he had a real soft spot for kids with special needs. Uh, He was very protected of them and was very patient with trying to teach them things. Like we knew he came across a family that had a special needs child who was nonverbal and probably about his age, but Cooper taught him how to fly a kite. He just, he had a kind heart in that way. He had an infectious smile And like I said, he was that fun kid adventurous. So he was into all the extreme sports. And obnoxiously, he was a self-taught natural at anything he tried. (laughs) So Don't you hate that? You're like, (laughs) you don't have to even work at this in your gut. Yeah. yeah. And we always say there was never, he would never say anything was too high or too fast. Like the more air he could catch, the better. But he loved motorcycles, skateboarding, scooters, tricks where he'd jump and flip and do things. He was a snowboarder, a wakeboarder. He loved to jump off cliffs. He literally had no fear, which was always scary, right? Mm -hmm. And with that, though, he also kind of had that mindset that he was invincible. Like he thought he could conquer anything and nothing was going to conquer him. So he was not perfect by any means. He was hard-headed, strong-willed, so independent. Like even from his toddler years, we knew we were in for it because (laughs) he had a mind of his own. And we battled, we struggled. He wanted it his way and we tried to keep those guardrails in place for him, but he did not want to fit the mold of a typical teenager and he didn't want to be told what to do. So we definitely struggled, but like I said, he had that I'm invincible mentality And as much as we wanted to believe that we could control his actions and his decisions, 
I don't think, well, we certainly learned we couldn't, but I don't think any parent can really control their children. And the scary part of this reality of this, I call it a new drug world that we're living in, is that we don't have that control, that kids are still going to be kids and their brains are still developing. And because of that natural development, they're going to make bad decisions and they're wired to experiment. And that's just part of the natural process. So I don't know. It's scary that we don't have more influence on that, but those are the things that put our teenagers at risk right yeah. now. And that's every teenager. Yeah. So Cooper, he was a handful, but we were surviving. And we'd had conversations about drugs before because we knew that he had the personality of the child that would try stuff. He's an experimenter. He's a, yeah, let's see what happens. I'll go first. Kind of. <laughs> yeah. So we talked about drug use frequently, and we knew he was using marijuana from time to time, and we were trying to nip that. But like I said, our family, including Cooper, knew nothing about the dangers of illicit fentanyl. And so that has become the focus of our education. And like I said, the irony in our story is that both my husband and I are in medical field, and we never heard of illicit fentanyl. We both have given it. My husband gives it every day. We're very aware of pharmaceutical-grade fentanyl, but we didn't know anything about illicit fentanyl. So another description would be it's often referred to now on the charts as illegally manufactured fentanyl. So fentanyl is an opioid. It's a drug that's used for pain and for anesthesia. It's also a synthetic drug, meaning that it's man-made. It can be made in a lab. And this comes into play when we talk about drug cartels and how they used to make their drugs. They had to grow them. So they were crops. So they needed a lot of land, a lot of sunshine, a lot of water. They were limited by natural things to produce their quantity of drug. But when they tapped into making fentanyl, illicit fentanyl, it's limitless how much they can make as long as they have access to the chemicals and the manpower to make it, they can make as much as they want. And so that's what's been happening. They're very smart in their business plan because it is a business that they're running. It's a half a trillion dollar business and it's a smart one for many reasons, but at the detriment to our country and mm -hmm. our kids. And also the other thing about fentanyl is it's very potent. So it's strong. It's 50 times stronger than heroin and 100 times stronger than morphine. So people might be more familiar with a medication called morphine. It's 100 times more powerful than that. So it only takes a little to kill someone, and it's very addictive. And so all of those factors play into the drug cartel's business plan. They picked the perfect drug to drive addiction, and that addiction creates repeat users, and repeat users creates more income for the cartels. So. Right. You want a consumable product that they're right. going to continue to come back for. You don't want to kill off all your customers. You want them to be lifelong customers. True. So therein lies the one flaw in their business plan is that they are killing some of their customers. But I would say the vast majority of those are youth that are unaware. In my mind, the fentanyl coming into the drug landscape, as we sometimes say, or the drug world, 
it's really affecting two major populations. And it's the population who already struggled with drug use, those people who are already using drugs and may have an addiction to heroin or methamphetamine or cocaine or something like that. Because fentanyl is now being laced into those harder street drugs. And sometimes the unknown amounts, they're not chemists, they're not scientists, they don't know how much they're really putting right. in mm-hmm. any one thing. So that is affecting those that are already using drugs and battling addiction, which is a real thing. Even as a nurse, I thought I understood addiction, but I've learned so much from other families I've met through our journey that have had kids or other adult kids or family members that struggle with addiction. And it is not something you can just turn off. So that population is being highly affected with the introduction of fentanyl, but also our teenagers are a big bucket of the new victim, basically, Mm -hmm. of drug use, where years ago, experimentation didn't kill you. And I'm not going to say it was normal or acceptable, but it is part of growing up. Their brains are wired for experimentation, just like when they were toddlers. So some people would come to expect it. Not everybody loved it, of course, that thought, but it happened. But in this day and age, that one time experimenting can be the last time, the only time, because it's going to take their life. And they don't know that the fentanyl is in what they're using. And so our focus is really on teenagers, because that's where our tragedy was. A teenager that didn't know, a family that didn't know about illicit fentanyl being used to make counterfeit pills. And so when we talk about pills, for me, it's important to make the distinction the harder street drugs are laced with fentanyl, meaning it started as cocaine and they added fentanyl to it. When we talk about counterfeit pills, they're often being marketed as Percocet, Xanax, Oxy. They weren't ever Percocet. They were never Xanax. These are strictly pills that have been pressed to look like that drug, but it's only made with fentanyl and other fillers. So you can't say that it's laced with with fentanyl. It is made with fentanyl. Okay. And our kids buy these pills a lot of times. I mean, so many stories over and over because they're Mm self-medicating. You know, our teenagers in this day and age struggle more. There's a higher prevalence with anxiety and depression. Mm -hmm. And they have a lot of friends who take Xanax, prescribed Xanax. So they're familiar with some of these pills. Maybe they've seen Percocet in the medicine cabinet at home. They know it's just for pain. So these pills that seem familiar to them, they're trying to get the wrong way. So they're looking to social media, which you can easily buy in quotes, a pill, a prescription pill. It's not really a prescription pill, but they think they're getting a prescription pill that should be harmless. But because it was made with fentanyl, it's killing them. So Self-medicating teenagers, experimenting teenagers are the largest bucket of victims because fentanyl. So how did Cooper get introduced to it? Obviously, he was an experimenting kid, but also I, you've mentioned, too, that he might have been trying to self-medicate or he was, how did his path cross with it? Yeah. Well, they have arrested someone for providing the two pills So back to Cooper's story, it was a Sunday afternoon, much like any other, and Cooper was at a friend's house, and I use the word friend loosely. Cooper definitely had a tendency to spend time with people we wish he wouldn't. The house he was at, we were not even familiar with this person, but he was with 
what he would call a friend that we wished he wouldn't have been with that day. And they all ended up at this house. So there were five people there. They decided to share two pills that they had purchased from a dealer that that group of friends had known previously. And they all shared those two pills. And what we know now is they all had pretty bad reactions, but obviously Cooper had the worst because he was the only one that didn't survive that day. So they they had recently, in our quest to get him not to smoke marijuana, he was getting regular drug tests. He had also gotten in trouble a little bit with the law. We we knew we were going to need help with changing some of Cooper's behaviors. So when the law needed to be involved, we would get them involved, hoping that would steer him in the right direction. So he was court ordered at the time for drug testing. And to get around that, they had recently switched to using something called synthetic marijuana, often referred to as K2 or Tukey or Spice. Again, we knew little about this as well, but this plug that they had been getting their synthetic marijuana from so that they could all pass their drug test is the one that offered them the pills that day. And did he say, hey, these are two Percocet or two Xanax, you should try them? Like, So they were being marketed as Percocet. Okay. Apparently the dealer had a keychain that was like from the description now that I know because we've had our first court hearing I we learned a lot recently about what happened that day because it was all under investigation and we didn't know a lot of the details but so you're just learning the details for the first time in two years three where are we at three years almost two and a half so it was August of 21 yeah yeah so yeah a lot of the details we didn't know like how the official connection was made that day who bought it just different details but anyway, this dealer had something attached to his keychain. It was like a stainless steel container that the lid screwed off. And apparently he had somewhere between 50 and 100 pills in that little container that he was carrying with him and offered those up to that group of friends. And they went back to that house and shared those two pills. And the next thing that we know is I got a text from Cooper's girlfriend who was there that afternoon. And she said that the paramedics were at that house and she thought something was wrong with Cooper. So I asked her to text me the address. And before she could do that, Shawnee police were calling and saying that we needed to get there as soon as possible. And so when we got there, we waited in the driveway for a while. Fire and paramedics were on site and after a little bit of waiting, one of the lead paramedics came out and gave us an update. And we knew how bad it could be. We just asked her, are you resuscitating him? And she said yes. And they had been at it 40 minutes. So we knew. But she also said that there was a change in his EKG rhythm that gave him a little bit of hope. And he had gotten multiple, multiple doses of Narcan, which is the drug that can reverse an opioid overdose. And I want to come back to that word in a minute. 
he'd gotten a lot of Narcan and they were going to transport him to the hospital. So they did transport. We went to the hospital. We waited a while again, got our first update. The physician, he told us certain labs that weren't even registering, but he wanted to give it a little bit of time and try to run them again with a tiny bit of hope in his attitude. But before he could finish his conversation with us, he was called back. And the next thing we knew was he wasn't coming back to us. And we had to go say our goodbyes. So that was our day. I'm so sorry. We will never know what it was that day which made Cooper decide to share those pills. It could have been curiosity and experimentation. It could have been self-medicating. We had just lost a very good family friend 10 days prior, a 16-year-old, a girl that he had grown up with. And I know that was hard for him. He could have been just being defiant. He could have been succumbing to peer pressure, just trying to fit in. We don't know. We'll never know because we can't ask him. But we know just because we've met so many families in our journey that have experienced the same thing, that this could happen to anyone. And I think that's what we're hearing so much more. I mean, and again, since this conversation started for me just a few months ago, I have seen the Netflix there's two shows out now. I can't even remember what they're called on the opioid epidemic mm-hmm. from a pharmaceutical perspective. And I've seen the addiction, the overcoming of the families and the stories and the things that they tell. And it's very eye opening to be someone and naive is the word, I guess, that I want to use to think that it is at our kids fingertips and even more so from a social media aspect hadn't even really thought about that. I mean, I I have teenagers, but we're just getting there. And I mean, we've had the conversation just in general, like you said, that you had already had with Coop, just about drugs in general and experimenting and drinking and things that way. But at the level of this, you don't think about as a parent having to have this conversation at such a, a deep level. And I think there's so much, we've talked about this with other things, bringing things up to your kids is like giving them the idea, right? Like so many people don't want to talk about stuff because it feels like you're feeding the kid to experiment or to do something. But I think the awareness for parents is so important so they can be on a proactive side Mm -hmm. versus reactive or not even being able to be reactive. And Kansas recently, just this last summer, passed to make fentanyl testing strips legal. I helped and went and spoke to the legislation about this. Now, Would that have helped Cooper if he had known he was taking a drug that might have fentanyl? Then, yeah, fentanyl testing strips would have helped him. So fentanyl testing strips are basically, they were made for urine testing. So you could sample urine and find out if fentanyl was in it. But it can be dipped into any solution and tell you if fentanyl is present. In Kansas, prior to this summer, fentanyl testing strips were considered drug paraphernalia. So people who had them in their possession could have been arrested. Yeah, yeah. Or at least charged with something, Something, having drug paraphernalia. So it was a big success to have those made legal. Now, that helps people, like I said, in the bucket who already struggle with 
substance use disorder. If they know they need to use their methamphetamine or their heroin because they have an active addiction, but they want to make sure it's not been laced with fentanyl, then they can test the drug that they intended to use to find out if there was any of that drug that shouldn't be there and it could save their lives. So that's where fentanyl testing strips play a role. With youth, I don't feel like they do play a role because the problem with our youth is they're unaware that what they're taking might have fentanyl in it. Mm -hmm. And normally, a lot of our teenagers have not gotten to the point where they're using those harder street drugs. So they're going for the pills, which Mm -hmm. they think are the real prescription pills when in fact they're the fake prescription pills. I brought that to your attention only because that was one of the arguments against fentanyl testing strips is why would we provide this so that people can continue to do this illegal thing? And and if they're there, are they going to promote more usage because people get a false sense of safety? And something that was brought to my attention was back in the 80s, there was a big to-do about providing condoms to kids. Oh, yes. And that it would increase sexual activity because we were providing that when, in fact, that was proven absolutely wrong. And so that was one of the like some literature that was brought forward to kind of put that whole thought that it's going to create more use. So I thought that was interesting. Will you go back to the word overdose? Yeah. So when we're talking about teenagers dying from fentanyl, in my presentation, I used this picture of Snow White accepting the apple. Nobody says that Snow White overdosed because she ate an apple, but it had poison in it. And the pills that these kids are taking, which oftentimes are not parties, it's not happening at parties. This is not a party drug. They're taking pills at home alone to self-medicate. Sometimes it's in a small group because they're experimenting, but it's not a party drug and they don't know what's in there. So they're not taking a massive amount of a drug that they know they're taking, which is what I would consider an overdose. Mm -hmm. They are getting the smallest amount of poison, I'll call it, that's been put into something that doesn't look like it's supposed to be. You know what I mean? Yeah. Mm -hmm. They think they're taking a Percocet. It's not. It's not a Percocet. Right. Which I think that is brings us to the awareness is that kids are youth, teens, they're seeking pills as a coping mechanism. So it's still, we're, we're talking about the mental health crisis. Yes. We're talking about anxiety and depression and things that are coming out even more so in kids. And instead of them feeling comfortable talking about it or bringing it to someone's attention, they're like, you know what? I've seen my friend take Xanax, or I've seen my friend take a Percocet. I'm just going to give that a try and see if that will help calm my nerves or my anxiety. Or, I mean, that's that's really the issue. Yes. Right. And quite frankly, the most high functioning teenagers, I feel like might even be at more risk because the ones that are doing great in school, involved in all the things, appear to have it all together are the ones that don't want to have to admit when they don't have it all together Mm -hmm. and they're going to keep it to themselves. We just interviewed Brittany. It's our teen anxiety episode that just released a couple months ago. And she was one of those kids. She's like, I was a high functioning anxiety child that my parents had no idea how bad I suffered. And she was a, a perfectionist and, and did all that striving on her own and didn't want to talk about how difficult it was. Yeah. And 
this is not 100% of the time, but a lot of these teenagers don't want to let their parents down. And they, that's what they feel like. They mm-hmm. feel like they're going to disappoint their parents if they come out and say, you know what, maybe I don't have it all together. And this is how I feel. And, and so this could be the high-functioning athlete, the scholar student, the ones that you think, that you look at and think, gosh, they should they have never. a care in the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're the ones that are going to secretly turn to social media to try to get something and self-medicate because they know other people that use it. It seems harmless. I don't want to bug anyone. I don't want people to know I don't have it all together. So everyone is at risk. A lot of the stories I hear about teenagers are you're sometimes they're treating pain. So a 13-year-old who had a dental procedure was still having pain and he was gaming with his friends. And somebody said, oh, you can get a Percocet on Snapchat. And he did, and he died. Another 15-year-old boy was hanging out with friends at the mall. They went back to a friend's house. He was complaining about how sore he was from his football workout. And the older brother gave him a pill for his pain. College students home from college, they just want to relax. They just want to chill. Some kids with anxiety just want to escape their world for a little bit. Some want to sleep. A good night's sleep is all that they wanted, and they take a pill alone, and parents finding them dead the next day. They're all seeking to help themselves. They're just going about it the wrong way because they don't know that that danger exists. So let's talk about what parents, what we can control, what we can do. So what is the first thing that you would recommend a parent of a child, any child, do first? So there's a good website that I often reference. It's called Addiction is Real. And again, we get into these words that, you know, have so much stigma to them, right? Yeah, yeah. But this website is an amazing website that has a parent tool that that teaches parents how to start talking to their kids about drug use from the preschool age. Those conversations are just, these are things that are good for your body and these are things that are bad for your body. And then as they go through the stages of life, it gets a little bit more in-depth and a little bit more in detail. So there's good literature out there to start talking to your kids as early as preschool. If you already have teenagers, what I like to tell parents is that in the world we're living in and this prevalence of anxiety and depression, it's not about if your kids start to struggle. It's more like when they -hmm. start to struggle. To have the conversations before you get to that crucial point, do you talk about the dangers of self-medicating and what's available to them and have a plan in place so that the teen feels comfortable when or if they get into this place where they're struggling, you already have mapped out that this is fine, honey, we can deal with it. This is what's going to happen. And you're not going to look down upon them. You're not going to like already instill the fact that you will not be disappointed if they come to you and they're struggling because we want them to think it's a sign of strength rather than a sign of weakness, right? We have to lay the groundwork before they need it so that they know the path to getting help safely is already there and that you're going to support them 100%. In fact, I would even put it like nothing would make me happier than if you came to me Mm -hmm. and we could do this together so I can be by your side because nothing is more important to me than you being here. If they don't go about it the right way, 
they might not be here. So have the plan in place before they need it. Have it spelled out so they know as easy as one, two, three. And in that conversation, you needed to have the dangers of if you choose to go this way, this is what could happen. And this is how it would make our family feel and everybody that loves you. I mean, you got to be pretty blunt. I feel like you have to be very direct, but they have to know their options before they need to make that decision. When we look back at when we were growing up, I was never exposed to the type of things that my girls that are nine and 10 that are exposed to now, like they're Mm -hmm. just words and issues and, and things that they, we have conversations about and we talk about what are they talking about in the song? And I mean, I was just, my friends are in the bathroom getting high as the Empire State. And I had to explain that to my nine and 10 year old. Like those are conversations I just didn't have, nor did I, was I thinking anything about it. But now, I mean, as parents, it's completely different because well, and I are. think like how she was describing it in the beginning, though. I mean, it, say no to drugs. Like that's always been a thing, right? right like that's yeah. what we grew up on. That's what we know. What we're experiencing is what's happening to our country and how this fentanyl is being brought in. We're at a different level than what we ever were before. Right. Well, in, in our day, the drugs weren't the same drugs as today. Right. I mean, even if you take fentanyl out of the mix, the drugs today, like even marijuana, is so more potent than it was back in our day. Mm-hmm. Like the drugs are just completely different. And there's a hashtag out there and it's just say no, but it's K-N-O-W. So now it's about knowing, mm-hmm. which implies you have to have a conversation. Right. Yeah, right. Make sure the kids know And then hopefully they can say no on their own accord because they have the information that they need to make a better decision. Because in our day, kids didn't die from experimenting. They didn't die because of a bad decision. They were able to learn from their mistakes. But in our world today, they're not always able to learn from their mistakes. So the root cause, obviously, is fentanyl and illicit fentanyl. How is that coming into our country? 90% of it is coming from across the border from Mexico. Two cartels are responsible for 90% of the fentanyl production. And like I said, they have a really great business plan. So I'm just going to summarize it from the get-go. They picked fentanyl for a reason. It's cheap to make. They can make it in limitless quantities because it's synthetic. It's odorless and tasteless, which means it's much easier to smuggle across the border. It is highly potent. So those that they can get to use it, try it once or sprinkle it in with those other drugs, they're getting a secondary addiction and they're going to need more of it. So it just increased their sales. But on top of that, they've also are harnessing our technology to move the product. So they're using social media apps Mm -hmm. to sell it. They're using cash apps, our apps to collect the money. It's being delivered to homes like it's it's easier than ordering a pizza. So they're using delivery apps to have it delivered to kids' front doors. So they've used all of this and they, they chose the United States for a reason because they knew the problem with opioids that are being addressed are completely different than the opioid issue that we're currently in the midst of. Because you referenced this back in the early... 2000s, it was a pharmaceutical company that was not being completely honest with the providers about this drug, Mm -hmm. this opioid. 
OxyContin is Mm -hmm. the big one that they're talking about. And it created the first addiction issue, the first drug crisis in the United States, which there's still aftermath from that. But for the most part, the United States got a grip on that. Prescription opioids are highly regulated. They are not given out in massive quantities anymore. Physicians are much more aware of the issue and do what they can. And there's oversight. There's DEA oversight to all of this happening in the pharmaceutical world now. This new issue is illicit fentanyl. Mm. And I just want to say, as a healthcare provider, I got to put this out there because people hear fentanyl and they go to the hospital and they refuse receiving it because they're so scared of it. In the hospital setting, in the pharmaceutical world, fentanyl is a great, wonderful drug that has been used since the 1960s. And when it's given in a medical setting by medical professionals, and it was fentanyl that was created in the United States under very tightly controlled labs with quality checks that you can't even count, right? it is a completely safe drug to receive. Nobody goes home on fentanyl, really. Right. It's not something that's prescribed and handed out right. in a pharmacy. There's a rare occasion for like a terminally ill cancer patient to get a fentanyl patch to deal with their pain. But it doesn't get prescribed in, in pills or given to you post-op. It will be used in the hospital setting. It will be monitored very closely. And it will be weaned appropriately before someone gets transferred to a Percocet or a, a pain pill that they can take post-op. And even those, uh, I spoke at a health class, a few health classes last spring, and both health teachers gave an example of how they had recently had surgery. One of them got one pain pill when they were sent home, and the other got three. So that's how tightly controlled now uh, the physicians are making sure an excess of Mm -hmm. pills are not making it out, which is also a valid point to make to our teenagers that what they think is available to them on social media, they might think it's a real prescription pill that somebody just had left over and now they're selling it. That doesn't happen anymore. Mm -hmm. And DEA has already put out data that of the pills that they have confiscated. And in 2022, they confiscated over 59 million pills. They tested them more than 99% were in fact fake and made with fentanyl, and 70% of them had a lethal dose. The numbers for 2023 are already higher. We're, I think we're at 74 million. And that's just what's being found or caught. Found. And early on, I, I asked my DEA contact, like, so how much is actually, like, you're getting this much, but, but how much is actually making it into the country? And at that time, she said, we think we're getting about 20% of what's coming across the border. So, Well, yeah, one of the statistics on your website was that 250 to 500 million pills with fentanyl are in circulation in the United States. And that's probably outdated. I also have a friend who works DEA in the Phoenix area, so he is all over this border issue. And I recently asked him the same question, and I was like, hey, like, A year, year and a half ago, DEA in my area was saying they're taking off or getting about 20% of what's coming across. I said, what do you think? And he was like, well, it's closer to 30. I think, he said, I think for every 10 vehicles that comes across, we probably stop about three. So it's still coming in. 
that's even vehicles. Yeah. Right. It's coming by land, air and sea. Right. And it's coming by people. I mean, we can see you can just look at cameras now and just see the millions of people, the numbers of people that have crossed the border illegally. And again, these people are being used or they are being sold the lie of if you come over here and bring this package with you, that's your ticket to the United States. And so, I mean, it's not everyone has. I mean, there's such a stigma, like you said, that saying illegal immigrants and we need to shut the border down. There's more than just one reason why we need to shut the border down. One, things like this, Mm -hmm. because it's not regulated. We do not know who's coming through, if they have good intentions, if they're part of the cartel. If we can look at them and go, huh, for some reason, I think your family's being held hostage while you come over here and make this drug deal. That's why. The border is such a big deal. And because these things are not being made in the United States, because we have all the regulations we do, other countries do not. Right. Mm -hmm. And so why it's getting to the root cause. Mm -hmm. It's backing up. We were in Oklahoma recently and I probably saw 10 to 20 different billboards that say, have Narcan, have Narcan on hand. Really? Yeah. Oh, it was everywhere. And it's just like, it could be fentanyl, have Narcan. Yep. And it was just like, I mean, and you can get that over the counter now. Yeah. Yep. You can get Narcan over the counter. Wow. I mean, I saw it in Walmart. I did not know that. that. That's new too, just this last summer. It used to be that it was pharmacy dependent. And what I learned is it was based on the pharmacist that was working there at the time. So it wasn't that pharmacy's rule. It was that pharmacist rule. And if he wanted to provide Narcan to anyone who asked for it, you still had to go to the counter and ask for it, but anybody could buy it without a prescription if that pharmacist was comfortable <laughs> with selling it. Now it is that it should be on the shelves at all your drug stores. Drug stores. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So to wrap this up, Libby, tell us about your advocacy. Who are you speaking to? What organizations and how can people find you? So when this all started, immediately when we lost Cooper, and before we knew very much, it takes six to eight weeks to even get toxicology back. So somebody had clued us in that it could have been this illicit fentanyl that we knew nothing about, but we didn't get confirmation until we got his toxicology report back. But we immediately wanted at Cooper's high school to be educated. So we facilitated bringing DEA to um, the school and provide education. We also provided some education through that Addiction is Real company. They're based in St. Louis, but they were doing things virtually still because of COVID, but they educated the parents, or at least I should say the parents had the opportunity to be educated. To participate. Yes. Yeah. And those well, are two very different things. They yes. are. And that's what I was saying. I mean, we had the class offered to us as part of the back to school night type thing. There were four different options. And I think that the awareness needs to be a more of a you need to go to this versus an option because we all think, and as you probably did too, not me. Not my family. Not not us. Well, and it's that stigma too. Nobody mm-hmm. wants to talk about it yet. When we're still we're getting better, but there's still a lot of people that don't want to talk about it and and those that think it can affect them. So the first information I hope people will learn is that you can be affected. I mean, Mm -hmm. 
you need to get out of your denial. But the most dangerous words you can say is not my kid or not my family because it can be any kid. And an example that I'm sorry to have to use, but that helps bring that home is I recently met a family who lost their 18-year-old son in April. His dad works for the Kansas Bureau of Investigation in the Narcotics Unit. So all he has been doing his entire life is fighting this fentanyl battle, and he lost his son to it. So I'm actually presenting with him tomorrow at a school in Topeka. So the other thing that makes me nervous is that people hear bits and pieces about this epidemic crisis, whatever you want to call it, and they think they know. But the feedback I get after I do a presentation is if it's with parents, the first question is always, when do our kids get to hear this? And any administration that's there will come up and say, oh, I thought I knew what was going on, but wow, I didn't even know the half of it. And so they're starting to think they know, but they don't really know the nuts and bolts of it. And so until you hear the whole thing. So I'm afraid people are not going to these informational sessions because they think they know what's going on, but they really don't know the depth. Yes. And that's because of let's call it what it is. We're all headline readers, right? Like you don't read an actual story anymore. And we go to one sense of news source. But like there's things that are just hidden from we just we talked about it earlier that are hidden from the public eye that they're not going to advertise. So if you are not getting this kind of education, you're not going to find it. It's not going to come across. I do have one question before we, like we said, get all of your information out so people can support you and find you and have you come and speak at their organizations. What happened to the other four kids? Well, they all survived. And we only knew two of the other four kids we had never met. And they weren't all kids. Okay. To put it. Yeah. Um, Some of them were over the age of 18, let's say. And we have not kept in touch. Only Cooper's girlfriend, who was there that day, we, we keep in touch with. So, I mean, I've heard stories here and there about a few of them. I'm not sure that it changed their life drastically, which makes me incredibly sad. Initially, maybe now it has, but yeah, I don't really have a lot to report on that. I was just curious because our kids are exposed to it. Like before we started this, we talked about two deaths that were Blue Valley alumni grads. Mm -hmm. And that was like, but how does that not rock your world? But I just. Yeah, I wasn't sure if they were on the path with you to advocate. Yeah, I would. yeah. Yeah, that would be something that I would think. I mean, your life is never the same after that. You would think. You would think. Yeah. But again, all of their brains are still developing. Their brains are going to continue to develop until they're in their mid-20s. So they they all still have a lot of growing up to do. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So anyway, initially we brought in DEA to talk with Cooper School. I don't think much happened that fall. And public speaking would have been ranked as my top fear. When we got into this, the first presentation that I was asked to do was actually for the Blue Valley School District. And all of the parents were invited. That was in April of 22. I'm Blue Valley mom, and I don't know that I knew. Yeah. Yeah. They have, there is a group related to drug and alcohol, and I can't remember the name of the group, but they provide annual education. So this was that annual education. And I want to say 
25 parents from the entire district made it out that night. And it was a panel. It wasn't just me. It was me. It was someone from an adolescent recovery center. It was a school counselor. It was a police. It was a variety of, of voices talking about this one issue. You, I'm doing numbers here. 25 people were maybe in the room and the entire Blue Valley district. Yes. This was offered to the entire vote. And Tracy here says she didn't even. So obviously it was not well, advertised I well. I need to give a disclaimer that I don't read every single email. Well, and that's that's <laughs> that's terrible. That's common. No, that's <laughs> so common, common. But they have to if you have to change when the time is asking you to change. It's something that we've talked about before. Like people are not reading their emails anymore. Text me. Yeah. I literally have email instead of people. I'm like, just text me. This is not I'm not going to write an email about this. But like. You, if you are wanting to bring awareness to something, you have to communicate in ways that people are, it's going to get to them. Yeah. yeah. Well, and I also think too, that we have to open up our minds a little bit. And just like we talked about, if I had not already had something that night, I probably would have gone to that session at the middle school. I wasn't in attendance that evening, but I mean, it is something that it is becoming aware and it's just touch points. It can't just be one. Like we have to keep bringing awareness. It can't just be one. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I know Olathe School District is working mm -hmm. on a lot of things. I sit on a coalition, a Johnson County Prevention and Recovery Coalition, and there are school administrators as part of that coalition. So I'm hoping that there is more provided at the school level. But that kind of launched, it seems like every time I speak, it leads to one or two mm -hmm. others. I also have a sister-in-law who is a nurse practitioner in the Wichita area. And she speaks as often as she can. We both still hold full-time jobs, of course. But we just want to get that out there as much as we can. So we will speak to any group that will invite us yeah. and listen. I haven't had to say no yet. I have turfed a few longer distance places to other affected families that want to get out there and share their story and educate people. So it's worked out so far. Very good. But to date, since we started in April of 22, I think my total, I was just looking on our annual report, figuring that out. We've done 88 presentations and reached almost 21,000 people in person. Wow. wow. That's great. Yeah. So we're, we're happy. Such an right. oxymoron Yeah. when we're going somewhere and we're excited to do it. And then you stop and think, I wish I was doing anything else but this. And at the same time, there's nothing I'd rather be doing. Yeah. yeah. Right. So anyway, we will talk to churches. I've talked to PTAs, to schools. Some school districts have had me educate every student. Other school districts have offered optional assemblies. But National Charity League, I'm talking to a mom's group at a church coming up. I am actually got in front of the Kansas School Board some of the school board members recently. And, and that's led to, I'm going to do a webinar for, for the Kansas Department of Education counselors, and then another one for the mental health professionals. So it, it leads to a lot of things, yeah. but. Do you have other webinar options for, so we obviously have a lot of listeners across the world and especially across the country that they could listen to, or, I mean, I even know you were talking about a viral TikTok that had told your story. I mean, there's a few things that are out there. What would you direct the listeners that aren't local? I'm going to direct you to our website and to we have social media. Mm -hmm. 
And there are two National Awareness Days around fentanyl. One is coming up in May. One is in August. And around those dates, there will be nationally offered webinars. Okay. So all of that information will be posted. I know in May, across the nation, there was some really good webinars offered. There was also one here, Locals. So Operation Engage is a program offered by DEA that was just brought to Kansas City in 22. So for a year, they had a local person here planning events, and we partnered on a lot of things. So she would sometimes ask me to come speak and be part of the panel for one of her events, and I would schedule something at a school and ask them to participate with me as well. So it was a great collaboration we had going, but they offered some webinars too at one time. So whenever information like, like I don't offer them, I'm not that big, we're a small mom and pop shop. But when I know of these resources, I always put them on our social media accounts so people can register and tune in when they need to. We will have all of your social media accounts listed in the show notes yep, here. And the direct links to your website. Too. Yes. But will you just share your website right now? You can get there two different ways. So you can go to Cooper Davis Memorial Foundation or you can go to Keepin' Clean for Coop. And just to give that a little reference, when we were looking at providing education at Cooper's High School and wanted to bring awareness to the kids, I said, I want to make a bumper sticker. You know, the kids are all into the stickers, right? Mm -hmm. And not that it had to go on a car, but they put it on notebooks and, and water bottles, bottles and, and computers. Yes, yes. yes. Like, I want to make a sticker and I want the sticker to remind them of Cooper's story and to also kind of serve as a pledge, like remind them, keep them clean for Coop. And that doesn't mm -hmm. mean that they had an issue to begin with, that they're staying clean. It means stay away from all drugs, especially yeah. those counterfeit pills. That was the message we wanted to send. So it turned into the logo that we use for our organization and still hope that it serves as a pledge. You know, when I speak to schools, I always hand out stickers or bracelets or pens or something that they can grab. And it's just supposed to serve as a reminder of a story. And hopefully people ask about what it means and then they can tell yeah. someone and spread that awareness. Yeah. Well, we can't thank you enough for spending this afternoon with us and sharing your story and Cooper's story. Obviously, it is a tragedy, but God has done miraculous things with the sadness and the heartbreak that has gone with it. And having you bring awareness and education to people that, I mean, 21,000 people in just a matter of year and a half because that was 2022, I mean, is incredible, Libby. And just you are an inspiration. And I want our moms to know, like, you can make a difference. Mm -hmm. You can start something. And it doesn't have to start with a tragic story, but it you can make a difference. I mean, mm -hmm. just Libby and um, her family is a perfect example of that. Yes. Thank you for your courage being on here with us. Yes. Thank you for sharing. Thank you so much for your time, Libby. Until next time, housewives. Have a good week, housewives. Thank Bye. you. Whether we made you laugh or cry today, we pray you feel appreciated, bolder and braver than yesterday, stronger and more faithful for tomorrow and living in who you were made to be today. Join our online community on Facebook, link in the show notes, and be sure to review and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you enjoy listening. Until next time, housewives, we give you permission to walk confidently, free, and to be intentional in your slippers or stilettos.